Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game-based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. MiniCoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out MiniCoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today's Monday, April 25th, and I wanted to talk about something that I think people might be vaguely aware of, but which hasn't been acknowledged as the sea change I think it is, and that is that the right has gone on offense politically particularly at the state level, Governor Ron DeSantis probably getting the most media attention, but he's by no means the only governor, and Florida is by no means the only red state that is not just opposing new progressive laws, but passing conservative laws, really to an extent greater than at any time I can think of in my adult life. So one thing that I've always heard, the complaints from the right, is that the left kind of swings for the fences, goes for it all during every election cycle, and the conservatives kind of just try to slow them down. I've heard conservatism itself described as progressivism driving the speed limit. I'm sure other people have heard that as well. And the general complaint is that we're always on defense. And when I say we, I'm not a conservative, but among conservatives, that's what I hear. So there was a pretty interesting article that gave an overview of what's going on in some of the states. It's called Wave of Conservative Laws as Governor's Eye Presidential Runs. And this was linked to by Real Clear Politics. That's how I stumbled across it. This website is called Political IQ. And I'll just give you a few passages from it to give you an idea of what's going on outside of Florida and Texas, the two states that get the most attention because they have the most electoral votes. But the article starts out saying, this year has seen a wave of conservative laws passed by Republican governors. Following Texas's lead, 13 other states have proposed or passed six-week abortion bans. 16 other states are looking to copy Florida's parental rights in education, also known as the Don't Say Gay law. And a total of 35 states have either passed 
or considered legislation banning the teaching of critical race theory in public schools. Leading the way are a number of Republican governors who appear to have an eye toward running for president in 2024. And this article, of course, is focusing on the governors. You have to remember that if these laws have passed, then that means that their state legislatures are majority Republican and majority the kind of Republican who would be interested in this kind of legislation. So I think that represents somewhat of a sea change from what we've seen most of uh, the past 30 or 40 years. I think the Republican Party up until the Trump era was, at least as far as its politicians were concerned, dominated with economic issues. And of course, its rhetoric was free markets, small government. Of course, they never delivered that ever. Not even while Reagan was president, when the federal government's budget doubled in size over his eight years, and not to mention expanded departments like the Department of Education that he campaigned on completely eliminating. But at least that's how Republicans got elected when they did. And that tells you where the electorate, where the people who voted for them were in terms of what they thought was important. And just as an example, if you think back to 1992, when Pat Buchanan pretty much ran on the same platform as Trump, protectionism, economic nationalism, less interventionist foreign policy. I think Pat Buchanan's even less interventionist than Trump and on cultural issues, meaning using the power of the state to influence what's taught in the schools and otherwise affecting the culture in a conservative way. So Buchanan's campaign had a strong minority, enough that he was allowed to speak at the convention. And I would say that most of the excitement back then, most of the enthusiasm was with the Buchanan brigades, as they used to call themselves. But they didn't have the numbers to get the nomination. And I think now you've seen this shift from the so-called establishment Republican, which were more and more neoconservative as we got into this century, and the kind of Buchanan culture-oriented Republicans who seem to be the overwhelming majority of Republican voters these days. Now, that's not universally true. Somehow or other, Liz Cheney keeps getting reelected, as does Tom Cotton and Lindsey Graham, and other neoconservatives. And they make up the opposition in the party. They and the people who elect them make up the opposition in the party to, let's just call it Trumpism. And as an aside, if these people oppose Trumpism on the basis that it's big government philosophy, that it's anti-capitalist, that it's anti-free market, I might have some respect for these people. But the sad thing is, is that the only reason that these people oppose Trump and his voters is because they're military interventionists. And the good thing about the Trump movement, that's what they oppose. So that's par for the course for politicians for you. They pick out the one good thing about a movement and they decide they're going to make their stand against that. Now, of course, they may say all kinds of other things about why they oppose Trump, especially these completely 
transparent inanities like the dignity of the office, etc. The reason that Liz Cheney opposes Trump is that Trump's foreign policy is less interventionist. And had he been even as interventionist as Obama, they would have fallen in line right behind him and overlooked whatever uncouthness or supposed corruption Trump was guilty of in their eyes. But getting back to the original subject, that we have this populist right, as it's often called, and it's definitely taking a more active role in the political sphere, which a lot of grassroots Republicans are greatly relieved to see, finally, we're going on offense. We're not just going to sit here and try to slow the progressives down. We're going to fight back. And I just want to point out that the prospects for shrinking the size or scope of government are pretty dim in a political environment like this. And again, the results that Republicans gave us back when they used to campaign on limited government or at least small government, I never used to hear many Republicans say the words limited. I'd hear them say small. And of course, more often, they were just talking about making the government more streamlined, but not getting it out of any particular area of our lives. But in this environment now, Republicans are going to win by promising their constituents to exercise much more power than they've promised to exercise before. That they, Like I said, they're going to go on offense and pass bills that utilize the power of the state for conservative ends. Now, the article, which, of course, I'll post on the show notes page in Political IQ, focuses on how this could affect Republican governors' chances for obtaining the Republican nomination for president. But I think it also provides some insight into what America may look like for the next several decades in terms of federalism, because I think that since COVID, it is clear that the federal nature of the United States, these United States, in the plural, as it used to always be referred to, has been somewhat revitalized. Now, of course, the fact that the federal government showers money on all of the states to neutralize any responsibility state to state for their own policies kind of waters that down a little bit. But to the extent that depending on what state you live, you may have drastically different policies on things like vaccine mandates, or if some of this legislation is successful, what's taught in the public school system, I think that's significant. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you like to read books as much as I do, there comes a time when you realize you just won't ever find the time to read every book you're interested in. Well, I have great news. Blinkist offers the key ideas from nonfiction bestsellers in as little as 15 minutes. For most books and their extensive library, you can choose to read or listen to Blinks, which summarize the main ideas and allow you to absorb whole books in the time it takes to run your daily errands or commute to work. Not only does Blinkist allow you to glean the information you need from books you don't have time to read, it helps you to decide which ones to spend time reading and get more details. 
You can try out Blinkist for free and get 20% off your first year by going to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist. Start your free trial and get 20% off today. And now let's get back to the show. You work on the answer, then you quietly save the day. You were right, Mr. Spock, about everything you said. We humans just are logical, too crazy in the head. Now the downside to this is the idea of limited government just seems to be completely absent from anyone's mind. And whether that's conservative or liberal, no one is talking about eliminating the government's role in anything. And I have written about this before, specifically on the economic side, that the anti-capitalism of the early 20th century is back. Well, I think it's bigger than that. It's the statism of the first half of the 20th century. Now, here in the United States, the Democratic Party dominated the first half of the century with the presidency and Congress for long, long periods of time. But the opposition to, let's say, the Roosevelt administration was often no less statist than the people who voted for the administration itself. There was a general feeling that the government had to come in and solve these problems. And it really came down to an argument as to who was going to leverage that power better for whatever ends the political faction desired. Now, of course, you did have some heroic anti-New Dealers out there, but really, even at the time, those were in the minority. There was a lot of uh, opposition to the New Deal that admired Mussolini, which is ironic because the New Deal was based on Mussolini's system. So you had a general anti-capitalism during this period. And really, anti-capitalism was at the root of all of the totalitarian regimes of the 20th century. That's something that people tend to forget. The Nazis were vehemently anti-capitalist. The fascists in Italy, anti-capitalist. Of course, the Soviets, anti-capitalist. All the communist countries. And the reaction against the progressive movement and the New Dealers was in large part, a very statist one. So this was not a good period for freedom. Of course, we had two disastrous wars. And I think a world war is government at its apex. That's what you get when government has no limits. And when limits on government are removed uniformly throughout the world, you get the equivalent of a berserker just stumbling around with a giant sledgehammer, swinging it in every direction, destroying huge amounts of life and property, setting civilization back decades. And that's really what happened to Europe as a result of the world wars. And unfortunately, you can see this pattern beginning to repeat. We've had several election cycles where the anti-capitalist sentiment has generated all the excitement. First was Barack Obama and then Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump on both sides railing against free markets, free trade, and specifically on the right, since the rhetoric used to be for free markets, this had to be denigrated as somehow childish and outdated. Well, 
This is just how people sounded in the 1930s. Believe me, this is nothing new. No, free markets and private property are not outdated concepts. And I think that this represents a real opportunity for the Libertarian Party. Because whereas before the Republican Party kind of pitched a lukewarm, watered-down free market platform that I think everybody in the back of their minds knew was mostly baloney, and if you listen carefully, was really just promises to tweak the existing system, the Libertarian Party has an opportunity to fill that whole free market space with the real message. But I think it's got to be a radical one. Just think about what's generated all the enthusiasm in both the Democratic and Republican parties over the past seven or eight years, and it's been what people perceive as a radical message. Now, with Bernie Sanders, of course, it was a radical message, and I think the left has shown the way. They're always swinging for the fence. They're talking about nationalizing all of health care, slogans like end capitalism. And on the right, Donald Trump really was able to convince people he had a radical message when it wasn't all that radical. He promised not to touch any entitlements. He didn't talk about cutting the military or cutting any major regulatory agency, as Republicans had talked about just uh, four years before. But he made people believe that what he was going to do was going to be radical just by enforcing the immigration laws and putting on tariffs, which he did, which were a disaster. And that's something the Libertarian Party should point out. But the Libertarians can't talk about tweaking existing institutions. They've got to talk about eliminating whole swaths of government influence over our lives. Give people a message that they see and understand as radical. That's what they're dying to hear. Talk about getting young people out of Social Security and Medicare by cutting military spending overseas, bringing 228,000 soldiers home from these useless deployments, which benefit American taxpayers not one bit. These are the kinds of things that I think would make the Libertarian Party successful, or at least put them on the map so someone pays attention to them. I think that's what the Mises Caucus is saying that they want to be about rather than the party attempting to appear non-threatening to the status quo. So I think that's where the Libertarian Party could make a difference, maybe appeal to that almost half of the electorate that doesn't bother to vote, perhaps persuade some of those Republicans who used to support limited government and free markets and never get it from the Republicans, hey, we're here to really give it to you. Otherwise, I think we're headed in a somewhat discouraging direction. We're seeing a cycle here where history kind of repeats. And what's very disturbing, of course, is what's going on in Ukraine and what could go on based on what has begun as a regional conflict, but which all the major powers of the world have now taken a side on. So let's hope that things go in a different direction sometime soon. Because I think all would agree the first half of the 20th century is something nobody wants to relive. So let's call that a wrap for today. Incidentally, the subject of this particular podcast coincides with the imminent release of the first of three courses I am going to do 
based on my book, Where Do Conservatives and Liberals Come From? This first one will be called, Where Do Conservatives Come From? And it will soon be available for a very reasonable fee or as a free bonus to paying members in my Patreon. So I'll have that one soon to be followed by Where Do Liberals Come From? And then a third lesson coming out of the book, Where Did the Founding Fathers Come From? So I look forward to making that available for everybody. And for the remaining two episodes this week, I'm going to have as my guests John O'Neill and Sarah Wynn, who are the authors of The Dancer and the Devil, Stalin, Pavlova, and the Road to the Great Pandemic. Great book that I recommend. And the great Norm Singleton to talk about some of these issues related to the general anti-capitalist and pro-government attitude that seems to have swept both sides of the political spectrum. So I'm looking forward to both of those conversations. And as always, I just want to remind you, if you have not yet downloaded my free ebook, It's the Fed Stupid, you can do so at itsthefedstupid.com. The ebook is free. And there are also links there to the paperback on Amazon. If you have the means, buy a copy or two and hand them out to your friends. Really, when it all comes down to it, it doesn't matter who you vote for as far as economic outcomes are concerned. The Fed has all the power. And the more people who understand that and what it means, the better. So go to itsthefedstupid.com, download your free copy of the ebook, pick up the paperback if you can. And if you like the music you've heard on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at tommullensings.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you on Wednesday. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.